collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. and welcome to another episode of Collective Power. I am excited to have as our guest today, a returning guest, attorney (laughs) Carla Krull. Carla, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me again. Again, Um, thank you for joining us from beautiful Hawaii and choosing to be with us rather than in the sun or on the beach or whatever you guys do out there. So you're an attorney and you have like a great experience both at a civil level and in criminal law as well. And so we'll be focusing today on the system as relates to um, the legal system, but connected and specifically to criminal law. And before we dive in, I ask you the question that I ask all of our guests when we open a show, which is tell us a little bit of story of yourself that has us understand a little bit more why you care about what we're about to talk to today? That's a great question. So only people who've known me throughout my life know that for many years, I actually wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to be an F. I went through the stage of first wanting to be a police officer. I was told, no, you're too smart for that. So I shifted it to be an FBI agent. I was told, no, you're too smart for that. So my teacher put me in an engineering program. But my master's degree is in criminal justice because I really wanted to go into the criminal justice field. But the reason for that was growing up, my closest and best friend, and we're still friends now, we've been friends since we were two years old. I watched him get involved in criminal activity. But even as a kid, I saw that it was a lot of the home circumstances that led to his choices and even this different treatment. Before people talked about school to prison pipeline, and I didn't know that term, as a kid, I watched my treatment in classroom by teachers who had decided I was smart and I'm going to college. And then the treatment of many of the boys in my classrooms and from elementary school and how they were treated. So I just always thought that was unfair. And I think I told you on another time that when I was in fifth grade, I got kicked out of the class for screaming at the teacher for treating the boys differently from the girls. And so my friend, I just was really angry that adults did not step in. He was very smart, but people, he stuttered. So they treated him like he was special ed, even though he was really intelligent, so intelligent that he was very good on the streets, but people didn't value that. So I thought maybe if I can stop drugs from coming in the country, they won't get to my friends and the the children. Like, you know, they keep arresting people down here, but they're not arresting the people who are putting the guns and the drugs in our community. 
that was my 17 year old mind. And then I went and got my master's degree. And during my master's program, this is how I ended up in law school. One of my professors would said to me directly, you think too much and you ask too many questions to be an agent. So I think you should go to law school. <laughs> so that is a quote from one of my professors. He said, you think too much, you ask too many questions to actually be, be an agent. I've grown up thinking more from a big picture of, yeah, there's drugs in my community. I was the girl, MC Light, gotta who, gotta get a roughneck. She's my favorite rapper, right? Roughneck. I was the girl who was the bookworm nerd, but always had a crush on a kid who was just two seconds from getting arrested, right? <laughs> but always questioned, like, how does a 13-year-old get a gun, right? How does a 13-year-old know where to get drugs and be able to sell them in the police, there has to be something more coordinated from this. So throughout my life, I've consistently been frustrated by watching people go to jail. And then I used to work for a criminal judge for uh, while I was in law school. And just watching these people, especially in Philadelphia, just watching Black people every day coming in and out of the court system. And it's like, guilty, guilty plea, guilty, guilty plea, guilty, guilty plea. I actually focus in the civil area because I would leave court after working with a, a criminal judge and I would cry because it was just heartbreaking watching our people in and out of the court system. And sometimes for some of the dumbest things that they got arrested for. And I don't mean dumb, like they made a stupid decision, but I'm like, did you really need to arrest them for that? Like, why are we wasting the judicial resources? on something as silly as this. What I'm hearing is that from a really young age, you were already interrogating the system. Yes. And you were already heartbroken by how the system operated because you understood that there were bigger mechanisms than the individuals who were involved. Absolutely, 100%. That's really moving. And it's also a lot of knowledge to have at 17. <laughs> It was actually my college essay was me describing the trickle down process. I used to be a DEA explorer and that TV movie. What's a DEA explorer? Uh, drug enforcement agent. So they have programs where you can, it's kind of to get you to go into law enforcement when you get older, but they mentor you and you go through the DEA training, but in high school. So I, it was like once a month. I would go down. I have a mentor. They took us to Quantico. They showed us the training. They took us, you know, taught us how to shoot, all of that in the process. So by the time I was 17, my college essay was about me wanting to do as much as I can to diminish the amount of drugs that even make it to my community. So my friends and my loved ones will stop going to jail because I kept thinking they're on the bottom of this problem, not at the top of the problem. And so, so one of the reoccurring questions that has been showing up in this Data Geek series, which may be a little slightly unexpected, but how do you manage that knowledge? Like we often don't think about data folks as experiencing secondary trauma or experiencing kind of burnout? How do you, how have you managed or how do you continue to manage the knowledge at the level at which you have it? 
I'm embarrassed to say that this is not going to be a good answer and that it's not going to be encouraging for other people. I don't manage it well. I have not managed it well. I've been very, very sick. I ended up in and out of the hospital at the end of last year. And I am thoroughly convinced that the tumor that I had in my stomach has a lot to do with the stress that I've carried for years of just caring too much. And so now what I'm trying to do is set boundaries for myself. Like, let I'm Carla, let's do the good work and help people, but it can't be all of what you do, right? Which is why sometimes in social circles, people would not want me to be around because I was like the Debbie Downer character where people are like, oh, this is so exciting about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but let's think about all the people whose lives have just been, are suffering from us enjoying this bottle of wine right now. And they're like, Carla, shut up, you know? So carrying the data is difficult. I'll give you an example. This is like a, a perfect example of like not managing it well, but now I'm trying to learn how to do it better. So I went to a training in Philadelphia. It was for lawyers, one of our CLEs, and they shared this statistic that they were praising themselves because they were about to start veterans court. And it's something, because we're talking about the criminal justice system, I'll kind of talk about this a little bit more. But they were like, yeah, we're going to have this veterans court because all of these studies have been done and they looked at it and they found out a third of all the prisons throughout the United States, a third of inmates are veterans. A third of the homeless population is our vets. And then statistically, like every day, one vet commits suicide. And I was thinking, like immediately my brain went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have this huge budget and from the federal government, our federal budget that goes towards the military, right? And they get billions and billions of dollars, but a third of our prisons are veterans and we're creating a court to kind of acknowledge the trauma that vets go through when they come home and why they kind of end up getting into violent altercations because of PTSD and blah, 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 blah. And we want to create this special court to acknowledge that. And I was thinking, it's beautiful you're creating a special court, but that's not the answer. Why aren't we getting these people the help they need before they're released as a vet? (laughs) And why are they a third of the homeless population? So I got up and I had to walk out because tears just started to roll down my eyes because I started to think about this bigger picture. So now what I do is I do a lot of transactional work, helping small businesses, people. I do, I try to do happy work, right? Like people who are starting out, they don't know what they're doing. They need legal help. Hey, I'm going to help you and I'm going to make it affordable for you. And I'll also do the hard stuff sometimes, but I stopped making it my primary work because I, I wasn't juggling that well. Thank you for sharing that, Carla. I actually think that was a phenomenal answer. And I think it's really important to know how different people negotiate the knowledge because we so need minds like yours that think systemically. And when we burn out, we just go back to chocolate cake and <laughs> things of that nature. Or buy one way to I go back to chocolate place. cake. I go back <laughs> to chocolate cake. I some other people go back to chocolate cake too. I talk about chocolate cake a lot. Thank you for doing everything that it takes for you to be able to stay in the work and creating spaces for yourself to heal and regenerate so you can do that. 
that serves all of us, right? Your self-care serves all of us. Exactly. So let's kind of go back to this criminal justice system from a specifically legal perspective. Yes. Um, can you like either define the system or paint a picture of the different parts of okay. the system so that people who aren't used to thinking systemically could get a little bit of a, or people who do, but uh, don't have your experience can see the criminal justice, like the whole picture, the way you see the whole picture. Sure. No problem. So first I need to back up. So we have a legal system, right? The legal infrastructure of the United States of America is we have our legislators who are writing some laws, right? We have our judicial, which are, are our courts. And then you have the executive branch and the executive branch is also creating some laws. Those tend to be regulations. So when you say, oh, this regulation that grew out of the executive branch, well, all of these parts are a part of our legal system as a whole, right? So then now that we have those three parts, now let's break it down a little bit. So then we go inside of our court system, right? And inside of the court system, you have the civil system and the criminal justice system, right? A lot of people now, a lot of advocates now want to stop calling it criminal justice and just call it a criminalization system, right? Because <laughs> not a lot of justice in there, but we have the civil and the criminal system. The civil system, in short, so people can think of it, is person versus person. Like there's a conflict between individuals, two companies. The government is not involved in the, the context of like, you have broken a rule and now we're going to give you a consequence that is consistent with the breaking of this rule, right? Civil is like, we want people in our civil society to relate to each other well, and something has broken down in their interaction with each other. So now we need to have a third party step in and work that out for them. And the consequence in that system is two things. Either the court is going to order a behavior that's equity or they're going to order money, right? Okay, so let's put that aside. Now, the criminal justice system, right, when we're in that space, what you're actually dealing with is where the state, the government is saying, hey, this person has done something against the state itself. So we've created rules and we say, when you behave in this particular way, this is breaking a rule. And we as the state want to punish you for that. So under the criminal context, the consequence is prison, right? The consequence is jail. It can be fines. Along with that, usually it's money in there too, but the you lose your liberty, right? Is the ultimate consequence of the criminal justice system. And so I'll give you two examples so people can fully understand, right? So if I run up to somebody and I punch them in the face, right? People obviously, people will say, oh, that's an assault, but technically it's a battery. But so I battered somebody because I punched them in the face. It, the person can sue me personally for punching them in the face because I broke their face and now they had to go to the hospital and get surgery. And then I need to pay for that. That's civil. But let's say the person says, I don't care. I just want to walk away. The government is saying we have an interest in controlling people's behavior. We don't want bad behavior. We don't want people to be comfortable with running around and punching people in the face. So we are going to the legislators create a statute and they say, if you punch someone in the face, this is the crime of a battery and the consequences of that is six months in jail right and so even if the person was like hey i don't even want to go to court about this the police will say we saw the punch we know the punch happened 
we're going to court anyway, even if you don't want to be a part of it, this is a crime against the state. And so we're going to um, enforce that. So when we're talking about the criminal justice system, people have to understand is the context of whether it's your actual state or the federal government says that you've done this behavior. And we believe that the act of doing this behavior is a harm for people at large. So we want to enforce the consequence of removing your liberty from you for your bad behavior. Does that make sense? That's absolutely clear. So in terms of definition, it sounds like you're saying the criminal justice system is the system that regulates behavior as formulated as a set of misbehaviors in relationship against the state, right? And yeah, the, however we've defined it. However so, we define that, right? right? Quote, unquote, is between the individual and the state in that case, regardless right. of whether the person the attacked victim. or the victim decides to prosecute or not. Correct, exactly. Um, like in Pennsylvania, it'll say the Commonwealth versus Carla Cruel, right? Right. Hopefully not. So help us understand what are the pieces of that criminal justice system? Like, what are the pieces of it? If you were to say from entry point to end, like, what are the pieces that make this whole that institutionally is the criminal justice system? So that's hard. And I don't want to take too much time, but I'll, I'll say this. You know some of the basics because most people have watched crime TV, right? So you have a judge, you have a prosecutor, you have a defense attorney. Sometimes you have a jury, right? Sometimes you don't. Even though defendants have a right to a jury, what people don't actually realize is that there are some crimes that have, based on statutes created by legislatures, the crime itself doesn't fit into a category where you're allowed to ask for a jury for it. But, and that's usually the case of summary offenses. Like you're not going to get a jury for a summary offense, but you have your jury and then there's all this other stuff. So there's preliminary hearings, right? There's an arraignment. And the problem is, so outside of Philadelphia, it could be different things. Every state is different. And this is what I, I probably should say that's very important for people to know because I hear people confuse this all the time. Criminal law, generally speaking, is regulated and controlled by the rules of the state, not the federal government, right? So the federal government has certain things that they call crimes, but in order for it to be federal, one of the key things is that it has to involve interstate commerce. Now, how they define that is like this super technical thing, but feds don't get involved unless it's in interstate. If it's intrastate, it is defined by the, the state itself. And how people can conceptualize this and understand it is the marijuana or cannabis laws, right? So it's legal in Oregon, it's legal in California, it's illegal in Pennsylvania, but you can get a medical marijuana a license, right? And so a medical cannabis license. So each state is choosing something, but the federal government has said, nope, it's illegal. We catch you, you know, you got a bag of cannabis and you go from Pennsylvania to New Jersey, you have violated federal law, we will arrest you, right? So people often have to distinguish that. So you have different stages of your hearings, right? There's like the preliminary hearing that's supposed to see if they have just giving basic information to a judge, is it enough for your case 
to pass muster that it can go forward, right, in the process. So you have the preliminary hearing, you have arraignment, you know, bail hearings to see if the person can be released while they're waiting for trial. You have the appeals process. So after the conclusion of the case, there's an appeals process. And then you can like keep rotating inside of the appeals process in different forms in the criminal system and ways that you cannot do in a civil system because liberty is so important. The thing that I put on hold is I want to be very clear before I say anything else about this is that what is true on paper is not at all how it's practiced, (laughs) right? So oftentimes what people will read and they'll say, oh, this makes sense. Here's my common sense thought about what should happen in the law and what the rules should be. Or forget about common sense. I'm a law student (laughs) and I've learned this is how the legal system works. And then you graduate and you quickly learn this is not how it's applied in real life. And you have to relearn the whole system. So could you give us an example of that where the theory and the practice are very different? The easiest one and the, what came to mind, which why, why I paused it, is preliminary hearings, right? So preliminary hearing is really, the prosecution is supposed to give all the information that they have, right, to the judge. And the judge says, oh, yes, there's a possibility that you could win you know, in front of another judge or in front of a jury. So this case gets to go forward, right? And so they listen to the evidence, they understand the law, they conceptualize that and they give a conclusion. However, what practically happens is most judges just rubber stamp it. Oh, if the prosecution brought it, they must have a good reason to bring it. So I'm just gonna say yes and not do the evaluation at all. Or yeah, you know, police officers are good guys trying to do good work. Let's not make it harder on them by kicking this case. You know, they arrested the person. They wouldn't have brought it here if not. So then they just send the cases through. And then you have defense attorneys who've been doing this for so long who will tell their clients, ah, they're going to send it through. I'm not even going to really argue. You know what? Let's just, you know, negotiate a way and waive your right to a preliminary hearing because you're not going to win at the preliminary hearing anyway. The judges are just going to pass it through. So let's see if we can work on something else. Right. So that's a a practical example of it's almost like a waste of a process because it's not being used for the purpose that they have it. Got it. That's the easy one. Right. Give us some data. Like, give us some data about what we know about how unjust the criminal justice system is and how it's set up to perpetuate instead of actually shifting what we know to be pretty easy data. So I'm going to give context and then I'm going to give you the data. So let's remember that in most places, prosecutors are elected, right? And usually a, a district attorney gets elected. And when they're running, they talk about being hard on crime. We want to make sure our streets are safe. We're going to protect people. So keeping that as a context. As Americans, we've grown up and we've heard over and over and over again, innocent until proven guilty. If you're arrested, you're innocent until proven guilty. But our system is really you're guilty until you can prove yourself innocent, right? Right. And so the data I'd like to give, and this part 
just blows my mind when I look at look at it. So if you go to the National Register of Exonerees, so I'm not sure how many people know about the most famous name for this, but they are not by far, they're not the only people doing this is the Innocence Project. But there are lots of other lawyers that are doing this, so I don't want to take away from that. But the fact that in the United States of America, we can create an organization that has branches all over the country whose job is to get innocent people out of prison tells you that there is something fundamentally wrong with the system that says innocent until proven guilty. So here's one of the statistics. There have been 3,000 exonerees since 1998, and the total number of years that they have spent in prison together, these innocent people, 26,600. So 26,000 years, 3,000 people, right, who are factually innocent. Now, here's the craziest part. In order for you to be exonerated, right, so the Innocence Project is not just taking people who are innocent. They have very strict criteria because the law has created very strict criteria in order to do a writ, a petition of innocence, right, to say, I'm innocent of this crime. You have to have been convicted of this crime or maybe pled guilty, but something else. You've lost on every single appeal, right? So you brought in new evidence, shown even on appeal, you've done a writ of habeas corpus already saying, hey, I have new evidence. A person has come forward and said, I committed the crime. And some judges will say, well, you could have discovered that that person before they could have been brought to the court at the time of your original trial, you didn't do it, so you stay in jail, right? So we know you're innocent. So when the Innocence Project is taking these cases, they've been already had their trial, they've gone through all their pills, they've done their writ of habeas corpus, and now new evidence, DNA evidence has come forward, right? Showing this person is actually innocent, or there's new law, or there's a a witness, they find out that there was like witness tampering. And the person comes back and says, hey, you know, the cops said that if I didn't lie, they were going to take my children away from me. So that's the reason I lied on the stand. And I would like to recant my original testimony. And that testimony was essential to you being considered guilty, right? These are the cases that this is project are, are taking and they're still getting like one person out a year, right? So it's like, what kind of justice system do we have that this many innocent people are going to jail? And then I forget the author of Just Mercy. Uh, what's his name again? Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson. He does a TED talk and he explained one out of 20 death row inmates are factually innocent of the crime. Okay, so let's think about this. The purpose of our criminal justice system is that we want to punish bad people for bad behavior, right? That's what we say. However, we now have created whole organizations that are working to release innocent people to get out of jail who've been convicted of crimes and that we've now been able to get 3,000 people and more, like they're, they're coming out of the woodworks over and over again, people confessing to these crimes and saying, oh yeah, so-and-so's been serving 35 years for this crime, but I did And in some cases, the courts will say, hey, the system worked, you know, nobody cheated, nobody did anything unfair, so sorry that person still stays in jail. 
our system is not actually set up for innocent people to get out of jail, which to me says it's fundamentally not designed to do what it is meant to do. If innocent person has to go through what they have to go through, and even when there's obvious evidence, right? I've recently, I just heard this. There's grassroots law. I follow them on Instagram and they do a lot of criminal work. And they have this video about a young man in Louisiana who's serving a life sentence for selling marijuana. So you have people who have whole businesses of selling marijuana and another person who's literally sitting in jail for just selling marijuana, right? What kind of legal system do we have where doing it legally, you can do the exact same thing, but because you had a license and you didn't have a license, you are making millions and you are serving a life sentence in prison. In this case, it was even worse because he had actually what we now in many states call the uh, usable amount, like, oh, we're not going to, we'll give you a summary offense because it's such a small amount of marijuana. That's what he's serving a life sentence for. So when I think about the system, I'm going to go through a list of things that when you watch movies, if you listen to podcasts, serial, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't, from the first with the police officers, right? So their job, and I'm not beaten up on police officers. I'm saying that the system is designed wrong. So this is nothing personal to people. Instead of investigating a crime, they're encouraged to find a suspect and make the facts fit the suspect, right? And so if you've already narrowed the field of who could possibly do it, you're already starting off wrong because we're supposed to be punishing bad behavior so people don't continue to do that bad behavior as well as restitution for the harm that has been caused, right? But if your whole goal is to be a prosecutor with lots of wins, you incentivize police officers to do what they got to do to give you the evidence that you need to get the win, which makes it For the police officer, let's get the low-hanging fruit. Let's not do the extra work. Let's do what where all the arrows are pointing here. And if they're not, let's make them point here. So we're going to do that, right? So you have the problem in the investigation stage with the officers. You have the problem where our legal system says, okay, you have to turn over if the prosecution has exculpatory evidence. So they have evidence of you that you might be innocent. They have to turn it over to your defense attorney. But the law doesn't require them to look to see if there's evidence that proves you're innocent. So they don't have to prove themselves wrong before they bring charges. Right. And and we say beyond a reasonable doubt. I know that I'm all over the place, but the system is so messed up. It's like hard for me to just stay in one particular area. So I'm going to try to stay there. Just remind me to bring back to like jury instructions. That's a really important part of this process. Okay, so you have the investigation side. They're incentivized to get convictions, to get numbers, but they're not incentivized to make sure that the person truly, truly is innocent of the crime. And if you notice, and this is, so the state level, most crimes are on the state level. Again, I'm not super praising the federal government. I'm not saying that they don't do anything wrong. I'm not saying things are bad, uh, aren't bad there. But from a federal standpoint, and you can ask people who've ever been engaged in criminal process, they say, ooh, if the feds got you, 
they got the evidence, right? <laughs> they've investigated, they've looked at it from all sides, which is why when the feds usually try take you to court, people plea pretty quickly, right? Because they've looked at it from all sides. They're like, oh, he might claim this. So I want to prove he actually was the person or she actually was the one who did it. And we can't get around that. The same investigative process that the feds go through is not what's going through on the state level. And some people will talk about like, this is the defund police problem and money issues. I'm not getting to that. Okay. So then let's get to the prosecutors. Prosecutors have the ability to choose what cases to take and not to take, what to charge, what charges to put on there. And if anyone has ever heard of lesser included, where you charge someone with the highest, worst thing possible, and there's a practice of charging you stuff that they know they can't make but they might be able to make the lesser included like aggravated assault right so simple assault is a lesser included crime there's one element of aggravated assault that's not in simple assault and so they're like we might only be able to make simple assault based on the evidence that we have but we're going to charge you with aggravated assault because you're going to be so scared of the consequence of aggravated assault we'll say hey we'll plead you down to simple assault and then you're like oh i take that deal right Instead of yeah. just charging you with simple assault and then going down to like terroristic threats or going down to reckless endangerment or something like that, one of the lower charges in there. And so it's really a plea down or you have people who are pleading guilty and getting life in prison. And you're like, what was the exchange? Like, what benefit did I get? And they took the death penalty off the table, but you weren't going to get death anyway for this crime. So but they can lie to you and they can convince you of all those things. Okay, so prosecutors have a lot of power and instead of seeking justice, our prosecution system across the country is about wins. Let's win, let's look good. So they don't put in the work, and this is my general opinion, are always considering all the collateral consequences for charging people for every single crime that they can make. Instead of saying like, in some cases, I'm not understanding why alternative dispute resolution is offered after the fact, but why from the police standpoint, they can't say, okay, this was domestic violence. The person you keep beating is the person in your house. You're not running around beating everybody in the world. You're beating this person in your house. And I know this, I sound careless, but I just need to make a, a point, right? You need mental health help and we need you to suffer a consequence. Why can't there be a summary process to say the real victim should be a part of this conversation? Let's figure out how to help this person, right? You need to repay that person, but keep you out of the court system so you don't have a criminal record and now you can't get a certain job. So now you don't have money and you're in poverty and now you're frustrated and so you're angry all the time and now you're beating your spouse even more because you're stuck in this ridiculous cycle right okay so prosecutors power right and larry krasner ran on i'm gonna be a different type of prosecutor right and this is where you said we're gonna start and some things he did was better than uh, the previous prosecutors and i won't knock that but he hasn't fixed the system and anyone who believes that he has is crazy. If anyone thinks he's the worst DA ever, they're also insane. They just don't know anything about Philadelphia's history with prosecutors. 
But I think the answer is like, I did a, um, this is a, a data point. So in law school, I was really interested in juvenile justice, right? Again, because my friend was a huge part of my life. And I was thinking, how can we do treat juveniles differently so that their consequences are different? And so I read this study about Germany and their criminal justice system, it, particularly as it related to juveniles. So I did a study and they figured out, wait a minute, we noticed a common thread that kids commit the same types of crimes. Doesn't matter what culture, doesn't matter. Kids like to steal stuff, right? They do petty things and they get into arguments and fight. They do impulsive things. Most of their crimes were crimes of impulse and crimes of like theft. So in light of that, they decided to kind of evaluate the children. When you get arrested, instead of just like, okay, you committed this crime, we're going to punish you. They do an evaluation of what is best for this child. Are you doing it because you're in poverty, your family has nothing you want to steal? Are you joyriding and not thinking about the consequences, right? What's going on here? They set it up that by 25, no matter what age you were, 25, it ends because they said the brain is fully formed, you're an adult, and we want to make you into productive citizens of our country, right? So we don't want the punishment to be so harsh that you don't become a productive citizen. Well, their recidivism rate is in the teens, and our recidivism rate in the United States is like 30 and 40%. It's a different concept about thinking about everybody as being a part of the society and the ability to contribute to the society productively. So they set a criminal system to say, this behavior is bad, we want to punish you for it. But at the same time, we want to make sure that at the end, you don't want to do it again. You want to contribute to our society, right? I'll pause there. So the picture you're painting is a picture where the prosecutors get elected is highly problematic because they're focused on easy wins. And the fact that they're focused on easy wins creates a bias in the system and how we select suspects because we're looking for suspects that will allow those easy wins. And then the type of evidence that we collect around suspects is biased because we're looking first for what has people look guilty and then later or never for what has them be innocent. And as that's happening, there's also the bias that's inherent in the system in terms of how children and youth get involved through the juvenile justice system. Right? Yeah. So what do you envision in terms of how it could be different? Okay, so I have a couple of things, but I need to just mention two other things. Judges, a lot of people always blame judges, and some of them are terrible in their decisions, don't get me wrong, right? And what evidence comes in, what evidence is not going to come in, and throwing that out when it's a jury or when you have a what's known as a bench trial, no jury, and the judge is making the decision. They're still human, they have bias, right? But I sat in a courtroom where I heard a judge give the jury instructions of what beyond a reasonable doubt means. And she literally said, it doesn't mean that you don't have any doubt. She said, after hearing all the evidence, you really believe that this person is the one who did it, which is actually called the more likely than not standard, which is not the standard in criminal law. But that is the jury instruction that she was given. And I said, that's not beyond a reasonable doubt. So if you think about that, right, that type of instruction, you're going to get more guilty. The last thing I'll say about is 
defense attorneys, and then I'll get into my solutions. We live in a capitalist society and we have a job where people make money defending people, right? And especially if you're small, there are a lot of people who have like volume-based businesses. So what they're doing is trying to get as many of their clients to plea as possible because then that's less work and prep for trial. So they're not doing the work to cast enough doubt so their client is actually found not guilty of the crime based beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm not saying that I want people who've done bad things to get off. So let me say this as a context. If I was a criminal attorney, you don't want me as your criminal attorney. Because if you say to me, I committed the crime, I'm going to say to you, you hurt somebody, let's figure out how to make the person whole, right? Let's acknowledge that. And let's see if we can get a deal that you accept a certain level of consequence because you know you did wrong, but we don't want to take your whole life away because you are a human being and you are worthy of value. You don't really want me because some people are like, I just want to get off. And I'm like, but you killed somebody. <laughs> like there needs to be a consequence. Even if you didn't mean to do it, that this family is suffering from this. But all the people who are in jail, their families are suffering, right? Generation after generation. Okay. So here's my solution. A friend of mine said, her professor said, how do you get rid of all the crime in the United States of America in just one moment, in just a blink? Can you imagine, Rita? That would be amazing. He said, make everything legal. <laughs> That's the answer. We are defining what is criminal, right? Mm -hmm. And because our legislators are writing these statutes, this is where like voting sort of comes in and knowing who is in the legislature, their perspective and holding those people accountable. Now, I know voting is an issue because you got gerrymandering and manipulation of stuff. And there's lots of things to question our democracy in, the, in its form, right? I get that. But one way, as the system is without like destroying it as it is, we need to be careful about who we are putting in the legislature because they're the ones who are defining the criminal statute. And they can also decriminalize something, right? They can say, this thing is no longer a crime. We're not gonna hold people to that anymore, right? So just like there are a lot of people who are talking about like sex workers, right? So it's weird to me that I can watch a music video where a girl's half naked and her butt is jiggling in my face and she can be paid a whole bunch of money and that's fine, but you're a stripper and now you're less than. <laughs> we need to hide you. And Absolutely. oh, this place is not licensed. And so you're doing the exact same thing. So I'm gonna throw you in jail for sex work. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> right? Like, so we have to redefine those rules. That's one. And we as individuals are part of that process by like participating in the, the legal process. Two. A lot of people try as hard as they can to avoid jury duty. They think jury duty is the worst thing. They will make up lies. I don't want to be on the jury. The problem is that the smaller the pool of people who show up for jury duty makes it easier for prosecutors to get the jury that they want, that they know is going to convict, right? So it becomes much easier to pick out like, you know what, this probably, this person is, I think, truly pro-cop. 
So no matter what they're going to believe, the police officer on the stand. So I want that jury, right? And the defense attorney is obviously trying to do this too. But one of the issues that is very true, and there's lots of statistics to show this, is that a lot of the juries are racial and communities where there's a large amount of people of color the juries are racially biased. It is not a jury of their peers. But one of the reasons it's not a jury of their peers is because we don't want jury duty. So like, uh, uh, I'm too sick. <laughs> can't go to jury duty, right? Oh and my so, God, we can't avoid jury duty ever again. Right? Got it. So you're participating in the process. We need people who are going to think and ask critical questions. Did the prosecution make their case? right? That's one way that we can change it. Philadelphia in particular, stop being manipulated by the political process. We need good lawyers to be, I'm not saying that they're not there, but we need a good DA, right? That is looking very holistically in the context of harm to people and trying to reduce the criminal activity, but understanding that crime rises when poverty rises, right? And so, I'm not going to charge you with a crime and then also say, and court costs and fines, and your court costs and fines turn out to be $30,000, right? So you spent time in jail because you couldn't come up with bail. So now you spent a year in jail, but now your court costs and fines are like $17,000, $18,000, and you can't get off probation or do anything with your criminal record because we've chosen to do that, right? Or we've wasted the court's time with, because they choose which cases they take. Everybody, if you live in the United States of America, you've committed a crime. I promise you. At some point, you've jaywalked, you sped through a light. You like all of us have committed a crime, but all of us do not suffer the consequences for that type of crime that we've committed, right? Help me understand. So these are kind of pieces of that bigger picture. Because you think systemically, I think it's important to understand, like, what is a bigger picture that you envision that is possible, that all these small solutions could perhaps lead up to? But what is that bigger picture that you see? The biggest picture is that we need to decriminalize a lot of the crimes that we've made criminal. We need to decriminalize this. I think that that's part of the core. I think that we have to change the court culture right? Um, the reason I brought up the defense attorneys, the bigger picture is that our mental and emotional approach to criminal justice is maintaining the criminal justice system. So if you appeal, you lose at trial. So here's a piece of information that some people don't know. A jury can say, hey, we find you guilty, right? A judge has the power to do a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, where they're like, I heard you, but I also listened to the evidence as well. And the evidence, the weight of the evidence does not rise to the level that supports guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So they could overturn it. But there's a culture that they won't do that. There's an agreement to kind of not do that. When someone is appealing, even if they have new evidence, Despite what the law says, there's a culture to just go along with whatever the lower court did unless there's something blaringly wrong. Our legislators and um, leaders can change those rules, but we have to put pressure on them to change those rules, right? 
So systemically, I think the only way that we could truly change this is that we have to actually stop talking about the petty stuff. Like we fight with each other over, you know, just race inside of the system. And some people are like new to Michelle Alexander's book. Like now they just read it. So they, they're like the expert in, you know, the new Jim Crow. But I think that we need to have a very different conversation about, I think our system itself, as it is designed, as it is functioning, is cruel and unusual punishment. I think that the types of convictions that people get, I was on here before and saying, for me, I think we have to kind of go back to the constitution again. Like, I really do believe that our foundation, because we are a common law system and we use precedent, so whatever already existed, you are guided by that and that it's binding on you and making your future decisions. So the big picture is that we have to go to the foundation and fix the foundation if we are going to maintain a common law system because we have to overturn precedent that we've had generation after generation after generation. The other thing is for our legislators to just write new laws. Um, one of the things I think right now that we need to do first and foremost is make it easier for innocent people to get out of jail. It doesn't matter when, it doesn't matter what has been argued before, there should be a separate group court panel, however you want to do it. But if there is evidence of any kind of factual innocence, and you can do an evaluation just like the Innocence Project goes through a whole evaluation before they take a case, you can go through this evaluation and say, wait a minute, there's enough evidence here that even beyond a reasonable doubt didn't work in the first place. New trial, we're starting it all over immediately. And that should be the rule. I think that's where we need to start. Like that's the first place without having to change the constitution. We have to make it easier for innocent people to get out of jail. Why do I think that that's gonna help the system? It is going to expose the advocates of the criminal justice system. The people who are like, no, like Larry Kressler is a bum. He's not prosecuting enough. Da -da 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 -da. We need more crime and punishment. We need more blah, 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 blah. Those people don't know some of the things that Larry Krasner knows from having been a defense attorney, right? They don't know some of the systemic thing. And again, I'm not a huge fan of his, so don't, I don't want anyone to take that away that I'm like promoting him. What I'm saying is we need to expose people to how terrible the system is so that across the country, we can get a consensus that, wait, our criminal justice system is not working. And by making it always simply a race conversation, it polarizes us, right? So it makes people want to fight about it. Even when I went to the website for exonerees, I was disappointed that all of the first pictures were of black people. Anyone who knows the statistics of people in jail, there are more white people in jail than there are black people. It's just statistically the amount of African-Americans in our society. There's a high percentage of us who are in jail or have a criminal record. And that's the new Jim Crow. But on that exonerate list, there are people of all different races. Why are all the pictures of black people? Because it maintains this idea that the only people that are in jail and committing crimes are black people. So you've turned it into a race issue. We need to pull it, even though we are disproportionately affected 
by the criminal justice system. We can't change the system until we're really talking about the problem. And I think focusing on changing the system for innocent people are gonna expose all the flaws in the system to the people who are advocates of the system so that we can get on the same page to say, okay, here's, we gotta fix this. Cause I did not realize that this many people were, innocent people are sitting in jail. Does that make sense? Carla, it was great talking to you. How do people get in touch with you? So you can catch me on Instagram. Usually it's linked to my Facebook, but it's Cruel Carla. So cruel as in mean <laughs> and Carla, K-A-R-L-A. You can also call me or text me. It's 215-629-6349. If you email me, it might take me a few more days to get to you. So I'm not giving the email. Um, and I want to also bring um, to the listeners' attention that you and I actually wrote an article together on a process to change the Constitution. And I'll put that link in our show notes, but it's actually on Medium. Um, and I believe the yeah. title is It's Time to Change Our Constitution. So if right. you want to Google it, it'll come up, um, but we'll put a link in the note. Any final thoughts before you leave us today? Thank you for being here. An extremely insightful conversation. I would say let's do a little bit more research before we formulate opinions on either side. And I would like for people, if you care about humanity at all, I would like you to get a little bit angry at the fact that the statistic is, I just had it, that they believe that there are nearly 200 per 1,000 inmates that might actually be innocent of the crime that they've been convicted of and have criminal records for. I might've gotten the number wrong because I can't remember it, but look it up. You would be surprised how many innocent people there are with criminal records. So I want you to be angry with the system that allows people to suffer consequences for things that they did not do. Um, and then ask yourself, how can I be a part of the process to help fix that? Thank you, Carla. It was great being with you today. I always enjoy it. So I, I know that I talk a lot, but it's a lot in there. Well, you stack the conversation. So you have a bird's eye view on the system as a whole, and then you take us into little details and bring us back out. So thank Excellent. you for that. And thank you for the expertise that you bring of uh, decades of wrecking your brain over this. Really <laughs> thank you. Let's fix it. Let's yeah. fix it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.